Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam Xavier McNeil. On today's podcast, I have the esteemed privilege of chopping it up with Dr. Crystal Webster, Assistant Professor of History at the University of British Columbia, about her brand new book, Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, African American Children in the Antebellum North, published by our friends at UNC Press in 2021. In today's conversation, Dr. Webster and I discuss how she arrived at writing Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, the role Black Studies played in her development as a scholar, and Black Studies' roots in the creation of the text. And, of course, we actually mutually gush over our love of all things, Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Webster. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Likewise, likewise. It's been uh, an amazing opportunity to get to know you via um, Twitter, social media, um, Facebook, Instagram. I think the whole the whole suite um, there. So um, it's an awesome opportunity to talk to you about your amazing new book. I don't know if you know, you have a great book out. I hope you know. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and it's been a real pleasure to interact on social media and now see you, not in flesh, but, you know, yeah. see you on the podcast, have this conversation. Of course, of course. And uh, if I, I don't even know the number now. I think you're number 93 of uh, the interviews I've done in the last four years. So um, on my March to 100, I'm trying to, at this point, try to keep an order. Um, So I'm glad that you're you're right here. Um, And also I'm in Philadelphia, a place that plays a major role in the book. And I actually used to work in Boston, um, actually at the uh, African-American, or actually at Boston African-American National Historic Site, where almost every day for almost a year, I worked uh, at the Museum of African-American History in Boston, too. So a lot of the places that you're talking about in your book, 
where so many of the scenes happen, I've literally been there. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's totally sick. Like it's totally, totally cool. Um, to have you on the podcast for today. Um, and so with that being said, let's start with these questions here. Can you tell us how you came to write this amazing book about black children in the antebellum urban North? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you spoke about your experience being in the physical space of some of these places that is so much a part of my own story as well. But it actually begins not in the urban north, not in these spaces, but um, it actually begins in the deep south in the Mississippi Delta. And I really love telling this story because it's a really humbling experience and it lets me pay homage to the little ones who got me to where I am today. So this story really begins with being a teacher in an elementary school in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which I did just fresh from graduating from college from undergrad. It was an all-black school, and I was originally supposed to be teaching violin. I'm a violinist also. And And things changed, as they often do in the school system, especially in schools like the school I was at in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And I was assigned midway through the school year to teach fourth grade math. As I said, I play violin. As you know, I'm a historian. I am not a mathematician. (laughs) So I struggled not only in terms of the subject, but also in terms of being an outsider, being coming from grad school or coming from undergrad from the North, growing up in the Southwest, teaching at an all-Black school, fourth graders. Um, It was a very difficult experience. I called my mom every day. I really struggled even to just get into the classroom. But at the same time, I learned so much from my fourth grade students in Mississippi. I learned how they have their own community politics, how they have their own internal hierarchies of power, how they work outside of the adult mind and adult ideas of learning and intervention and education, that they are in their own worlds and they're really challenging how adults interact with them. Um, My students had very elaborate systems of economics and trades over things like mechanical pencils and erasers. It was such a fabulous world to to witness. It was such an honor and a privilege to be their teacher as much as I struggled. And when I experienced this and added a kind of racial element to this, thinking about what it meant to be a Black teacher who was not from the community at an all-Black school. I saw so much of what the students were up against, a lack of resources. Um, None of them had any school supplies. We did not have a playground. There was no recess. Um, There was a very strict discipline and enforcement of school rules and school policies through corporal punishment, which was still being used at the school for elementary students. Um, But again, that they were not passive uh, recipients or 
victims in this system that they were active participants in it, that they challenged all sorts of boundaries that were placed on them as learners and as students. So I took this experience with me to graduate school. I realized I was not meant to be a fourth grade math teacher. I went to graduate school for Black Studies, but I really held on to that experience. And as I said that, I learned so much from that very humbling experience of being their fourth grade math teacher. And in graduate school, entered knowing that I was interested in Black children's history and read Wilma King's Stolen Childhood alongside Robin Bernstein's Racial Innocence. And this really blew my mind, having both the historical grounding of the history of Black childhood alongside a kind of analysis of race and childhood and um, ways that even the concept of childhood adhered to or was mobilized to projects of white supremacy and racism that really affected me and spoke to that lived experience that I had as a teacher in the Mississippi Delta. And so I was so lucky to be in a place in graduate school in Black Studies that allowed me to do work on Black childhood that really centered Black children as historical actors and to be in a space in the five college area where we have this really rich um, resource and um, network of people doing childhood studies. So to have both of these at the same time was exactly where I needed to be in order to write this kind of project. And so the project evolved from my dissertation um, because I had access to archives in the area, archives in Massachusetts and in New York and in Pennsylvania, um, which allowed me to ask questions, big questions that I was interested in in graduate school around um, complicating boundaries and categories, something that I've always been interested in, specifically racial categories, as well as ideas of childhood and adulthood, and kind of geographic boundaries, presumed boundaries between the North and the South. Um, and what I discovered being in those archives in the region that I was in was that the experience of Black childhood was so crucial to challenging each of these boundaries, right, of um, certainly of childhood and adulthood and of an assumption of freedom between the North and the South, but even the kind of category of freedom and slavery itself that Black childhood really troubled that um, presumed binary. And so that research journey through the archives um, really led me to the, the, the North and these kind of embodied, fraught, and malleable um, boundaries and presumed categories, which became Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, my book, which is a social history of Black children in the North. 
And see, the thing is that I really enjoyed about your book um, is that it really goes to show when people talk about the 1780 Act in Pennsylvania, for instance, it's important, right? It's obviously an important time in the history of anti-slavery and abolition. Put that to the side. You put in the real like lived experiences, then it just shows you um, like with the Ricks family, right? As like the crucial connection between the 1780s really and the act and even the Civil War, right? And, and, and it just goes to show you that when we talk about, oh, but slavery, you know, because when in, in the American imaginary of the institution of slavery, as we obviously know, it's a Southern plantation space. But as your book shows, the not only the legacies, but the real experiences, right, are also occurring, obviously, in a place like Pennsylvania, when, you know, you can still be enslaved as a black woman in the 1820s and 1830s, right? And so that was one of the many things that I was like, <laughs> I was waiting to see when I was going to say this, but I literally like was just reading. I was like, damn, I didn't know that. Like, like just, 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 just like a million and one times. I was like, damn, this is like, like really like a book that so many people need to read, especially in this moment, in all moments, but especially in this moment where the question about identity, childhood, who gets to be a child when, um, and your book helped me to really think about the importance of play and, and your, your time at Clarksdale showed you that I think too, right? Um, so, so once again, I can, I can talk all day about your book, you know what I'm saying? So, but this is your time. Um, so, so to go to your time, right. So obviously you're a proud graduate of the WB Du Bois, uh, department of Afro American studies, where you graduated, as I saw, I believe with a PhD in 2017. So how did your core, because I want to get to know, you know, the, the people that you're around too. I, I know some of them too, so I know they're going to be listening too. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you do the talking here, but how did your cohort of classmates and great professors help you develop this project from a dissertation to the book that I have right here in the house? Yes, absolutely. I am such a proud graduate of the Du Bois department. I just, I need to give a shout out to all the folks at the Du Bois department and let folks know that this department has one of the best job placement records in the country. I just need to name that <laughs> and also name of, as you asked, some of the cohorts who not only worked with me, my colleagues who worked with me, but also who still inspire me and name again that they have fantastic jobs and are doing fantastic work. So folks like my girl Jacinta Saffold at University of New Orleans, Nika Denny at Washington and Lee, Cabria Baumgartner at Northeastern. I could go on and on. They are so inspiring. Um, and I just also want to say that I was so lucky to be able to get training in Black Studies, which affirmed me as a scholar and again affirmed the research I was interested in and the children I was interested in. And so much of this begins with my dissertation advisor, Manisha Sinha, who I will never forget. 
Um, I was her TA early on in my graduate studies. And this was even before the slaves cause came out. We all knew that this was going to be huge. (laughs) And we were all still intimidated by her. But this is even before the moment that we're in right now, right? Um, (laughs) And one day I was so nervous and I was setting up for her class. And I came up to her and I said, Dr. Sinha, could I schedule a meeting with you sometime? I have an idea for what I want to do for my dissertation. <laughs> and and she said, of course, just tell me now, what's your idea? You know, so I'm so intimidated. And I told her I wanted to write about Black children in the 19th century. And she said, that's a great idea. And I held on to that. And I still hold on to that moment today that she gave me that affirmation. And that was so huge. Um, And so, as I said, to be able to have training in Black studies, a grounding in Black studies, um, was so important to me. My major in undergraduate was also Africana studies. Shout out to Oberlin College and Conservatory. An important space, an important space. Come on now. Absolutely, absolutely. But then the Du Bois department gave me the kind of professional graduate level training, a very formalized training um, that valued interdisciplinarity. We had to do um, historical methods. We had to do Black literary theory, diaspora studies. We did Black feminist theory, all of this in depth at a really high level, which I so appreciate to this day that so many folks um, doing the work that are doing such important, valuable work are also coming from Black studies because we have this, this way of thinking and this, um, this very formalized training to do things in these interdisciplinary ways. Um, so I really want to make sure that I center that and also um, name the, the networks of folks that I worked with in graduate school. Um, the cohorts of students that were around me, we were like a community. We we fought like a community. We loved like a family. Um, sometimes the only Black folk we would see in the Pioneer Valley would be at the department, the Du Bois department. So we really, really relied on each other. Um, and especially, as I said, some of the folks that inspire me, but my 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 people who are still writing with me, my sister scholar, Crystal Doncor, who I pretty much call every day, who is from the Du Bois department that we, we grew as scholars and as, um, and as colleagues together from those early days. So the department really has such a special place in my heart. I had my kids when I was in graduate school. They came to class with me as a student and then as a teacher at the Du Bois department. So it really, I carry it with me in everything that I do. I love the Du Bois department so much. And I'm so glad that you gave like, not just like a little cursory, like you gave like, you put names down there, you gave times, you just laid it all out. Because I think that for so many people, um, especially um, we had a uh, we had a, a, a mini convo on social media when like the U.S. News and World Report uh, numbers came out about like African-American history. You know, you remember that? Uh, I remember that. I remember you were like, 
Like, like it's like, where, where, where y'all at? You know what I'm saying? So it, it's just uh, those interesting moments. And, and I think it also goes to show you the importance of the importance of community when you're trying when you're when you're attempting to do this important work and also how especially in spaces like you said in um in western uh mass um at amherst and in the surrounding community where like you said you might be the only you know you the people that are assembled in this in this space might be the only people that you'll see in, in a space so 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 you won't get close right and, and become a family um and i think also for those who Right, we're we're recording this interview in the midpoint of November, and the first round of applications we're already about to submit, and people are getting those ready now. So, for those who are getting ready to apply, I don't know the application deadline for uh, for for Amherst necessarily, but make sure y'all put put the Du Bois department on your list. You know, y'all they they got some people there, um, and also groundbreaking history. And so as a graduate student, I'm asking this for myself and and all of us here assembled in this, in, in you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're picking it up at. Um, so many people have questions about how does one go from graduate school writing into, you know, trying to complete that dissertation and then moving on to first book like yourself here, right? So you graduated in 2017. Four years, I don't know where in 2017 you graduated, but about four years later, here we are, right? And so um, I'm I'm interested to know how have your writing and research practices changed since graduate school at UMass? Yes, this is such a wonderful question. I love talking about research and writing practices. And I also want to, as you brought up the the application cycles. I also do want to normalize something for all the listeners out there. Um, You should definitely apply to graduate school for all of your top choices and for UMass. But I do want to put out there that I got into UMass off the wait list. So I want to normalize that experience. I've had multiple wait list experiences in my career not just for graduate school, but for fellowships and the like. And I want everyone who's listening to to know that you can you can still pursue graduate school. And if you get on a wait list, that that is a completely normal thing. And who knows where, where you'll go from there. Um, and I love talking about that and normalizing that because that's also, I think, an approach that I take now towards my research and writing, which is that research and writing to me has evolved from something that I struggled a lot with to something that I now have a kind of um, regimented practice around, but that so much of that is what I bring emotionally to a writing session. So just to kind of bring things back a bit, when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of marathon writing a lot of writing and research um, that was according to a deadline that I would sort of spit out in a long marathon writing session in the weeks leading up to a deadline in a very short period. Um, And I also, I had my kids, as I mentioned, in graduate school and anyone who has kids 
especially these days in the pandemic, knows that you learn to work when you have the time, when the kids are napping, when the kids are playing with Play-Doh, when the kids are in daycare, you have to, you have to do it when you have the time. But what happened is because I was doing this marathon riding, I started getting burnt out. And by the time I had finished my dissertation and was entering the tenure track, and I tried to follow the same pattern of writing, I very quickly realized that it was unsustainable. I could not spit out writing in the way that I used to. Um, And the way that I realized this was I had a moment because I was doing my marathon writing actually for my book manuscript, a deadline with my editor. Um, And I was drinking coffee in my office and at the library doing my marathon writing. And I had a full on panic attack. And again, I want to normalize these things. Hopefully it will help some folks out there. And I knew at that moment that something had to change, that I needed to change my relationship with writing for my own mental health and stability, my own emotional health and stability, and also for my work-life balance as someone with young children. So at that point, I developed a daily writing practice. I was not going to do writing only in the time leading up to a deadline. I needed to do it over time daily. So now I do write every single day for at least 30 minutes. And I have a ritual of writing. I log in to a writing group or a writing center. I have a timer. I have my music. I have my affirmations that I give myself, again, to kind of normalize some of these things as we're, as we're you know, Black folk, people of color entering academia. Um, and I had to remove anything that would deplete any of my energy in the writing space. Um, and that this, again, became so important for me, for my relationship to work to maintain a healthy relationship and also just my own health Um, and also became so important for writing beyond the boundaries of childhood and my next research project because so much of this work is about trauma and about violence and about anti-blackness which can affect us on an emotional level so I really needed to have a strong emotional foundation to do the research and writing that I do, which now I'm so much happier that I have. And um, also I want to shout out some resources for that. One amazing resource is the National Center for Faculty Diversity and Development. NCFDD (laughs) is fantastic, specifically for grad, for grad students, it's great as well, specifically for early career folks. They have the Faculty Success Program, which I went through as a whole semester-long program, which really transformed my, my writing and my relationship to work. 
Well, hey, I, I appreciate you for putting that acronym out there because I actually, like, I think it was right before, yeah, it was, it, it would have been right before the pandemic. I remember learning about it. And so I literally, like, I totally forgot about it, to be honest. So I appreciate you for bringing it back because, yeah, like, they, you know, they have so many resources. Like, it, it's like, it's wild. And I think that, um, for many folks, like, I think there's so much that, like, in terms of resources that we receive, um, you know, obviously this depends on the program, of course, but um, so, like, Rutgers, for example, as a graduate student, you actually get your, um, I guess there's, like, a subscription fee or some some form of, like, a fee. I think it's waived um, for, for us because of our institutional affiliation. Now, once again, I don't know everyone's institutional affiliations, and obviously, um not all institutions have that, right? Of course. But if you do, my goodness, that is not only an investment, but one that costs zero dollars, um, which which is the best. Um, and in terms of resources too, um, I noticed that one of my favorite people in all the world, Dr. Dunbar, you know, Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar. Hey, I know you're listening. How you doing? Um, she, she obviously wrote a prominent blurb uh, for your book, which, you know what? I was going to do this, but how about I read it? And this is Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar here at Rutgers University. She says, with a novel and important focus on the construction of black childhood in the antebellum North, Webster prompts us to rethink the construction of childhood and the experiences of black children and their parents in Northern cities, end quote. So this person, Dr. Dunbar, also um, helped to, I believe, endow the Library Company of Philadelphia's program in African-American history uh, not too long ago. And a program that, you know, is very important that I will be, you know, possibly applying for, wink, wink. Um, And so during your march to publication, can you actually, like, describe really the effect um, Dr. Dunbar's scholarship and mentorship has had on your trajectory as a scholar? Yeah, thank you so much for reading that wonderful blurb. I am so thankful that she wrote that blurb. I'm so honored. So she also did have a direct hand in me applying for and getting a dissertation fellowship from the Library Company of Philadelphia, which completely transformed not only my current research, but my future research and my entire relationship to history in early America. So I had applied for a short-term fellowship at the library company. And one day, Dr. Dunbar said that she wanted to have a phone conversation with me, which blew me away. And she asked me to consider the long-term dissertation fellowship yeah, that was that was a wonderful conversation. And not only that, but she talked through what that experience might be like for me as a Black woman and as a mother of a young daughter, which is a level of mentorship that you just don't get every day, right? That was such an important moment and investment in me and my research that I appreciate and will never forget. And so when I went to the library company, 
I was really blown away by the records that they have on Black children, not only at the library company, but also at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And it 100% shaped my research direction because at that point, I was thinking very broadly about Black childhood in the long 19th century, like the long 19th oh, century. Yes, and- yes, yes. <laughs> But I got there and I was like, this is it. We are we are narrowing this. Mm-hmm. I have more than enough here to talk about Philly and gradual emancipation. And I knew that the entire dissertation could really be shaped around that. And I knew that because of Dr. Dunbar's mentorship, but also because of Dr. Dunbar's scholarship, which told me, I can do this. I can write a dissertation on this region and on a group of people and that that is legitimate. It is not, I don't have to justify it. I don't have to say I'm going to write on um, black children and black mothers or white children and black children in Philadelphia or black children over a hundred year period, which is what I had thought I needed to do. But I got there and I realized this is what it's going to be. And I'm so glad that I made that decision because not only for the dissertation, but for the book, I still am thinking about ways that the experience of Black childhood in the North, in Philly, in New York, and Boston transforms how we think about slavery, transforms how we think about labor, transforms how we think about Um, distinctions between childhood and adulthood. So there's still even so much more there that I don't even get to in the book. So I know that it was a legitimate topic. And I know that, again, because of Dr. Dunbar and Dr. Dunbar's mentorship. Well, look, you speak it to the choir because, look, I, yes, yes, she is such an amazing mentor um, for, for both of us and for so many people, as, as you find, um, just, you know, talking to folks and, you know, um, you know, her first book is so prominent in this, in, in your work. And even going back to, um, Dr. Tamika Nunley, who I had earlier, right. You know, Dr. Umbar's first book is so dope. Right. It, it, like, in, 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 it, it helps me to also think as well when I'm writing some of my work on actually um, how black folks contributed to gradual, you know, to what became the gradual um, abolition act. And so trying to censor black, effectively black Philadelphians, black folks within the uh, Delaware Valley more broadly in this discussion about, how the gradual abolition law came about. Now, obviously we know, especially through your book, how a lot of the importance that people place on it, eh, once we show it to scrutiny, it's a little different, right? But still it is an important space that black people were not, um, you know, they were not outsiders to this uh, participatory uh, change, right? And so one of the things I noticed too, um, looking at your uh, bibliography too, as someone who has gone through the PA Abolition Society papers, that is such an important and just like, there's just, there's just so much there. Like there's just so much there. And um, 
you know, maybe uh, there's another podcast episode I want to have you on in 2022 uh, talking about just more of your um, archival process where we have that as the as the main space. So I'm going to leave some of my questions about that for a little later. So um, for sure. So, yeah. And so with doing a dissertation, with doing any kind of work, there comes challenges. So in terms of whether it's the writing the, you know, any part of the process, right. That, that you don't mind talking about on air picture, right. There are other parts where, you know, that's, you know, we keep that underground, we keep that fugitive, right. But for what you want to provide to the listeners here, what was the most challenging aspect of writing beyond the boundaries of childhood? Absolutely. I think so many parts are challenging, even to talk and present about is what I'm encountering. And even as I'm talking and presenting about Beyond the Boundaries, now that it's out in the world, I have a new appreciation for what was very challenging for me, what I didn't say, essentially, because it was too difficult for me to say. And I think that that, for me, has been violence and exploitation of Black children. So they experienced so many forms of violence that I didn't even realize um, until I was in revisions of the book and I had early readers um, commenting on on a kind of lack of explicit mention of violence. And it only took these conversations for me to realize that I wasn't facing this because of my own sort of positionality as a Black woman, as a Black mom of two young children that I was really, in a sense, almost um, not censoring it, but certainly not reading as critically as I could some of the sources that I look at in the book. So, for example, just a few examples of, of the kinds of violence um, that were staring at me in the face as I'm doing the research and writing of this book are um, a kind of spatial violence. So they experienced violence of exclusion, not getting into certain spaces, um, and then even a violence when they're included in in those spaces that then they're more vulnerable, they're more visible Black children in the North. So for example, not being admitted into orphanages was a kind of violence, but then being admitted was also a kind of violence because once they were in, they were attacked by white racists, sometimes by white mobs. So like the draft riots um, and the burning of Pennsylvania Hall when they Mm -hmm. directly attack black orphans for a reason, I argue in the book, um, because they have this new level of visibility and vulnerability. Um, a violence of confinement and of death and illness, which was very difficult for me to write about um, and to really come to terms with what that would mean for a child to write about it from I think this is the other really difficult part for me to write about it from the perspective of the child, right? So to the to right. imagine the world from their perspective of what it would mean to experience this kind of violence. Um, certainly violence in terms of labor exploitation, violence of indenture, um, 
and violence for things that were not being framed as violent, right? Things that are being framed as positive. Um, even the kind of, as you mentioned, the entire, the entire project of gradual emancipation itself being framed as a positive moment, but also for Black children that this is a moment of violence and exploitation at the same time. Um, and then finally, I think one part that I'm still thinking about that doesn't find its way into this book, which will certainly be a leading um, or something featured prominently in the next book is a violence of sexual abuse and exploitation, which was very hard for me to read and locate in Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, but I do think is there. And so for an example of where it likely is, is um, in some of the forms of specific calls for types of Black children to be indentured, requests for Black children who are girls, who are attractive, who are orphans. All of these things, we can certainly read a kind of violence in a kind of epistemic violence, right? But then also a potential vulnerability to violence that these children would have experienced once they were indentured to these whites who are asking for these very specific physical features. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and definitely uh looking forward to uh reading that future work too um and you know the good thing about what you've shown in terms of your writing process you get a lot of stuff out i've read um and, and seen a lot of your work out into the world so um i'm definitely looking forward to um reading more about this work especially there's um you know, it, you know, it's, it's so wild. I remember, um, and I'm not making a one-to-one -one comparison. Let me just clearly state that. But what you just said actually reminds me of how William Lloyd Garrison described Mariah Stewart when he memorialized her. But see, point, and I'm trying to, rem I don't have the words in front of me right now, but I do recollect that he did comment on her uh, her looks uh, effectively right so it just makes me think about what that may right not not saying did but what that also may speak about in terms of like how people oftentimes men comment on now it's obviously not in this case because of the nature of the commodification here that's not all the times uh, uh men but many times men will use that right? Kind of particular language. And I think that's just kind of like regular, regular, but 
as you're reading and and as I'm re- recollecting with with Garrison, you're just trying to think about what else is there, right? Exactly. Even for people that you're in community with, um, or at least were in a particular kind of way with the the early um, abolition movement in Boston. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Goodness. Ghostly. Um, and so, you know, obviously your work uh, focuses on black children in the urban north. But um, as someone who lived in New Jersey and has driven around areas of New Jersey, um, it made me think about the different kind of norths. Right. The, you know, you have areas that are very rural that, that black folks are also living in. So um, this wasn't necessarily in your book, but your book made me think about this. So um, how does black childhood differ when the geographic analytic is an urban aesthetic versus say a more rural existence in places like, like I said before, like New Jersey or areas outside of um, Philadelphia, for instance? Yes, it absolutely differs. And I think that even though the book doesn't speak explicitly to, say, rural New Jersey, part of what the book is doing is is challenging ideas of a universal experience of childhood, right? And that even we take that for granted, I think, that we assume that children are experiencing um, distinct phases of childhood, that childhood is recognized as this separate stage of development, right? But that changed over time and certainly varied from different populations. It varied for enslaved children in the South, children in rural environments versus urban, even for the white working poor or immigrant children. All of these experiences and manifestations of childhood were different, but especially for Black children who are seen not only as outside of the category of childhood um, socially, but also legally, right? Because they're either considered chattel slavery or chattel property under slavery or indentured, this kind of... um, this kind of nebulous space between slavery and freedom, or still outside of a kind of legal category because they're tried as adults or excluded from juvenile reformatories to a certain point. So all of these ways for providing more historical specificity to the idea of childhood certainly comes through in the book. One way that I do talk about the urban versus rural experience is by talking about the process of indenture. And for Black children in the urban North, one of the, another form of violence, one of the most sort of heartbreaking forms of violence was indenture um, to rural environments for children who are in cities like Philadelphia or uh, New York. And this was heartbreaking because from What I can say from the child-centered perspective is that they really resisted resisted the kinds of indentures that would separate them from their family and their friends. And usually the indentures that I was looking at where they would resist this was indentures that were initiated by institutions that housed Black children. So initiated by orphanages run by whites that housed Black children, or reformatories that then were indenturing children. And 
when they did indenture them um, to rural environments, some of them even wrote about it being a kind of strategic move to separate them from their families because their families had a bad influence on them. Their families were um, not showing the kinds of ways of performing or um, adhering to ideas of citizenship and of education and of um, a kind of uh, assimilationist idea of what it meant to be a free person um, that these reform institutions were advocating for and what that also meant. So that's a kind of um, racialized logic and argument. Mm -hmm. But what that also meant was if parents, it was a kind of (laughs) circular argument also, because then if parents said, we don't want our children to be indentured away from us to these rural environments, um, then these institutions would say they don't care about their kids. They don't care about us wanting to give their kids a form of labor. Right. <laughs> They're intervening on our reform process which means that they're not good parents, which means we need to send them away. So again, it's this kind of circular argument. And this circular argument that I find um, really sets the stage for a lot of issues that we're still grappling with in child welfare. Um, Ideas, paternalistic ideas of, um, of, of race and of parenting and of the black community and also ideas that now folks are arguing um, reinforce the carceral state and surveillance and policing of these communities. So to me, that's the way that I mainly discuss the, the child experience of being indentured to rural environments. The other area that I talk about this is is a labor argument of what kind of labor they would be doing. Children or parents really preferred children to do labor that was more skilled um, for boys, especially. And if they were doing more skilled labor, it would generally be ideal that they were doing labor in urban environments. If, If they were indentured to rural environments, they were generally performing unskilled agricultural labor sometimes in ways that directly um, extended or reproduced systems of slavery. So back to um, former enslavers or employers that are sort of maintaining the system of slavery that they had before emancipation. Right. And it makes me think about possible applications of your work in terms of like my mom, she's worked in social services pretty much for almost the entirety of my life, right? So so it makes me also think this isn't necessarily on script, but it is one that just came to my mind. Have you, in, in the work that you do um, as a scholar and, and also in a way an advocate, because I think that the work that you're doing is also important for advocacy work. So I'm interested to know if you've ever, um, especially in, in your new community too, is kind of thinking about the ways that you can then become um, a part of this newer community here at your new institution in, in, in BC um, about the kind of work that you can do in communities to take this work that's in the book to to put it on the ground, I guess. And so have you been able to do that um, so far in BC and or in other 
locations like Amherst or uh, when you were in um, uh, San Antonio as well. Yeah, that is the work that I'm most excited to begin doing at this stage in my career. I'm only, I'll be honest, I feel like I'm only just now feeling like I'm connected to a community Mm -hmm. to do that, um, community level work. So the way that we're doing it here in BC, I'll just do a shout out to my to my colleagues who are in Black Girlhood Studies, um, and we are working together to do um, some projects that give Black girls a way to connect across Canada and perhaps across North America um, to give them a space to connect and to really validate their experiences as Black girls, as a marginalized group, um, marginalized both by age also by race, also by gender. So, you know, intersectionality at play, mm-hmm. black girlhood. Um, and that is one of the the things that I'm most excited about in terms of the kind of applications of, of my research. And as I mentioned, the the connections that I'm now at, now that the book is out and I'm kind of taking a step back, seeing play out in this moment with um, education, with um, state violence that Mm -hmm. Black children experience, right? So we know that Black children, even Black girls, especially Black girls, are um, starkly disproportionately receiving um, or at the hands of state violence with police. Um, I mean, Many examples come to mind, but Tamir Rice, Makia Bryant, Trayvon Martin, all of these examples of the intersections of police violence and black childhood. Um, so like I said, now no, but that also the book to, how does that I'm able to kind of make those connections work. and write um, about that. That, that you know, helps space. people. And I'm so, so, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, I was able to, to, be able to, do to that ask you that question. So, you know, we can get on wax and um, shout out to uh, Black Girlhood Studies folks. And um, I, I also research. noticed you had given a talk at, um, at Records Camden. Um, as well, I think recently. So shout out to um, the the good my good friend who just graduated from there, Dr. Sam's uh, White as well. So like you know, just just so happy uh, for for all the things that she's doing. And so um, got to give her a shout out. Got to got to uh, uh, reach out to her as well after this. Um, and because I think you know a lot of times people ask the question. So 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 how does this how does this translate? Right. So I'm glad that we got to that. Um, and so in terms of translation, I want to, I want to hear you talk a little bit, uh, I want to hear you, uh, wax a little more about this particular question going from, um, page seven in your introduction where you state some activists, even abolitionists viewed black children's labor as a necessary element of reform, even as white children's play and schooling were protected End quote. Can you unpack that statement a little more for the listening audience, right? What particular abolitionist activists does your analysis implicate here? I'm very interested. I love this hard-hitting question. I'm happy to talk more about this and directly implicate all the folks involved. No, I'm just kidding. No, I will, though. Um, And this is because I will say what I am doing is child-centered. I am 100% committed to work that 
centers Black children in this project and also moving forward. And because of that, it really challenges traditional histories and conventional understandings of social movements, especially the abolitionist movement, which the histories and the movement itself in many ways were both very adult-centered. Um, both have marginalized the lived experiences of Black children. So I'm just going to say that as we start this conversation, <laughs> that it is child-centered, and that is the um, that is the mode of analysis I am committed to. So as we mentioned, scholars have remarked on gradual emancipation as this progressive anti-slavery moment, but I believe centering Black childhood really challenges that and complicates it, and it reveals that it was incredibly exploitative, and it excluded Black children from freedom by definition because they had to age into freedom. So again, be, if we're using that child-centered framework at the right out the gate, <laughs> this is exploitative for children. Um, and this is at the same time that white childhood and ideas of childhood were privileging whiteness, um, protecting white children from having to labor and protecting them by really validating their play their preciousness, um, and really having a kind of collective care and interest in childhood as a distinct stage of development. So these things happening at the same time, right, is the moment that I am fascinated by in this book, that we have white indentured servitude decreasing and we have black indentured servitude increasing because of this intersection of gradual emancipation and ideas of childhood, which again are privileging white children. And because of this, black children could not perform childhood in legible ways. And this has very long lasting consequences. We still are grappling with the ways that black children cannot perform childhood in legible ways, the ways that black children are adultified, the ways that we do not as a society care for protect the preciousness of black childhood. So again, I'm really implicating. Mm -hmm. You <laughs> better say it. You better say it for the people in the back. This moment right now in, in the book. Um, so, um, as I said, indenture is really important for this process and that many social movements and organizations like Quakers, colonizationists, and anti-slavery societies were directly involved in indenture. But at the same time, some Black folks were also really actively involved in indenture, right? Black people are not passive in this process. Black adults are um, very interested in indenturing their own children. There's a kind of economic um, side to this as well. However, again, centering Black children really complicates this. So one example that I give in the book that I think very clearly articulates how Black children's experiences were marginalized in the historiography and also how um, 
Black abolitionist societies or anti-slavery societies blurred lines with how they considered Black children, whether or not they fully considered them as children, are the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society records, which you said you wanted to talk about. So I'm so glad that I'm able to bring this into this conversation. So I was so astonished, blown away, um, shocked when I was at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I request the attendance record for the Clarkson School, which was a school run by the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. I'm going through the attendance record. I'm looking at the names of the pupils. Part of the book, what I was interested in originally doing that I don't end up doing as much as I would have liked to is I wanted to really map where these children were, where they're living, how they're moving to and from these schools. I do this a bit, but not as extensively as I would have liked to. So I was looking at their names, their addresses, where they're from. It's very detailed. It has their ages. It's fascinating. It's a really rich archive. But at the back of the attendance record, this same book has a list of requests for indentured labor. And these are folks who are writing to the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society saying, I would like a young 14-year-old domestic girl to come to my home. I would like a um, an orphan girl to come into my home. As I mentioned earlier, I would like a child who's not very dark to work in my home. Mm. It would have the, the request from the person, who their name is, where they live. And then often it would say supplied with a check mark. Like we did it, we got it. So... As I'm sitting here, I'm realizing that it's in the attendance book. So likely the person's recording the requests, flipping back through the names of children who are showing up at this school and identifying which ones are going to fit and going to be a match for this indenture. And this process so clearly to me shows how they're really blurring these distinctions between um, providing schooling for these children but not ever seeing them just as students, also seeing them as potential laborers. Like children could not just be children going to school. They were also children who could be potential indentured servants. Um, And at the same time that these children and the kind of effort to go to school, which is a big effort um, at this moment, to have access to schooling is a big deal and means that they kind of have a protection in a way from being an indentured laborer, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. go to school only to have these school officials create a catalog of who they then can indenture out. So I thought that that was a really, um, a really clear example of how these distinctions were blurred for, um, for adults and for folks involved in these reform movements who have a kind of bigger picture of anti-slavery activism that really marginalized Black children and Black children's lived experiences. Look, I'm I'm even happier after your uh, response of getting um, all of this on the record and and just goes to show like, you know, going back to um, the uh, Pennsylvania Abolition Society papers, which I've gone through like the manumission records. And and it's just so wild thinking like when we talk about like freedom papers and 
and all these different things. Like we have to also think about how when we think about like family histories and and like reclamation, right? To even think about, um, you know, we obviously know what happened um, with the, the the remains of uh, the the move bombing um, folks from you know decades ago, you know, coming back you know to the surface earlier this year and thinking about repair. Right. And in one of the things I remember asking someone or maybe even just to myself when I was um, in the records, this would have been actually right before the pandemic. So like February um, in early March of 2020, thinking I'm photographing, I am holding somebody's maybe not freedom papers, but in route to freedom papers. Right. In just generally speaking, important familial papers, right? If I know that I'm holding someone's family record, and I end up finding out that I actually knew someone who might have, whose family might have even been enslaved there, right? And we're talking, you know, just over the border in, in southern um, uh, Jersey, and thinking like, yo. Just, just going back to that Killmonger scene in Black Panther and to just bring it from like that specific example to like an actual real lived experience and think like, yo, if I can just show you my family tree, I'm like, yo, this is this is my people. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so what you're talking about with the records reminded me of if I can show that my family was, you know, effectively jostled in this in this game of indenture what kind of repair would be needed, right? Where I don't care how quote unquote well I'm doing now, this is mine, right? So, so, so that what you just brought up just conjured some, you know, remembrances that um, were lying dormant. And so uh, thank you for giving them life here Um, and to help me and probably the listeners too uh, think more about that too, because these are people's lives here, right? The kind of the kind of um, scars, literal and figurative, that literally killed some of these children, like right. And so, 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 first of all, thank you for your work. We ain't at the end of the interview. We probably about halfway through, but thank you. This, this is just this is amazing. And it also makes me think. Yeah, it just makes me also think about politics, right? So obviously, we're just thinking about. Um, how black like the, the the resilience of black children one of my mentors uh dr Teresa perry at um simmons college you know wrote you know she's written about um you know black education and and black birmingham where she's from right and thinking about like the birmingham children's march right and just thinking about like these are children who are these important, important actors. And, and it made me think about this question. So um, one of the most fascinating aspects of your work is how it calls scholars to deepen our engagement with the political and especially the inner lives of Black children. So can you discuss how Black children involve themselves in the politics of the world occurring around them in New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston? Yes, this is such an important issue for me because I came to this project through the work of childhood studies, which offers us children as historical actors, 
childhood as a social construction and a category and through Black studies and Black feminist theory, which offer us centering the Black experience in historical analysis. And from this experience and from these backgrounds, I discovered that I was really drawn to the lives of non-elite Black children who found themselves in these systems and in these institutions. And these were children who didn't necessarily have access to more formalized ways of expressing politics and activism. Some of them did, um, and I'll talk a bit about those later, but but many of them did not. So at the time there were, especially in um, the latter part of the book, the 1830s through 1860s, there were more formalized spaces for children to express political activism, like um, in the abolitionist movement um, and in schools and in choirs, for example. <laughs> but um, And I, I know that people have done really important work in this area, like Cabrilla Bumgartner mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Hilary Moss and Anna Mae Duane even. But I really wanted to celebrate children like um, Rachel, who is on the cover of my book, who is Mm -hmm. an indentured servant to a Quaker family. Children like the Ricks brothers that you mentioned, Stephen, Simon, and Henry, who are orphaned children um, who to die inside an orphanage at at a very young age. And um, even children like Austin Reed, who was an indentured and incarcerated for much of his childhood, um, and someone who flees uh, juvenile reformatory. And I wanted to center all of them as historical actors and as making political decisions. Um, So I read into their actions a kind of politics, even when they're silent or when they are adhering to social norms and when they're challenging social norms and when they're trying to, especially when they're trying to perform childhood in all these contradictory, confusing ways for a child to be told to perform childhood as a proper worker, um, to perform childhood as mature and pious and respectable um, and almost adult-like. So these, again, contradictions of childhood that these children struggle to adhere to is a kind of political endeavor because childhood at this moment is trying to exclude them. And that this is a part of the Black freedom struggle, that this is an effort to claim freedom, that claiming childhood itself is a way of claiming freedom. So for just a few examples, like Austin Reed that I mentioned, when he runs away from a juvenile reformatory, he's resisting the kind of prison reform movement, which is identifying directly um, Black children as inherently criminal. When children who I write about in my chapter on schooling, when they choose 
not just to go to school, which is certainly a political act and an act that they're being directly challenged from, especially children like Sarah Roberts, who leads to a very public political case and the end of segregation um, in Boston schools, but children who also chose not to go to school, children who chose to stay home, even when they're enrolled in a school, because it might be dangerous to go to school or they don't want to go to school, that even that is a kind of political act, that they are making a decision in that moment that we need to recognize. We're not going to dismiss them because they're children and assume that they're passive at this political moment, that they are still political actors. Um, Or the numerous children who flee indenture agreements, that that is certainly political, especially Many of these indenture agreements are exploitative, right, and are done without their consent, sometimes even without the consent of their parents. Um, But that also carrying out their indenture agreement was a direct path to freedom. Carrying out the indenture agreement according to the outlined (laughs) values Uh and system Uh within the indenture is a path, is a form of survival and a path towards freedom, literally aging into freedom. That growing up is a kind of way of attaining freedom for these children. And as I mentioned, children like James Jackson, who Susan Paul writes a memoir on, who is trying their best, according to her, to perform childhood in these ways that are um, that adhere to ideas of Christianity and purity and innocence um, that are complicated. Um, and show a, a level of awareness of what adults are going to react to, what adults are going to take note of. Or when Stephen Ricks, as the orphanage that he was um, orphaned to, said he could draw from memory an entire map of the United States, he knows that that's going to get attention. He knows to do so is a political act. Um, he's not. He's not just a child blah, 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 doing whatever, that all of these are decisions and political actions for for these children. And I think, you know, there, there's so many thoughts I have right now, so I just got to, like, think about where I want to go. But I just remember, um, I think it was in Dr. Dunbar's book where she talks about how when you look at the indentured, like, numbers of Black people pre- and post-American revolution, you effectively go from no black damn near no black people in like the 1760s and early 1770s to by the time the 1780s come around right you have this literal new population as white people phase out of indenture you have the entrance of black people right and it makes me think as well going to how you talked about survival having um just seen a, a doctor Vanessa Holden's uh, gave a talk at Rutgers about surviving Southampton, right? Think about the ways that black children survive. And, you know, she had that, uh, I believe the article in Slavery and Abolition that that I remember as well that she, I believe, wrote about that in particular. And it also makes me think about how in our conceptions of childhood, how, especially, goodness gracious, on a day like today with that, let me not say nothing wild, but the Renan House decision, we'll just say, 
in um, Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin, you know, just makes you think about to him, as he said it, his act of murder was an act of survival. But then clearly we know upon putting that argument to scrutiny, Lord knows we know that ain't right. We know that ain't nothing. But it just, you know, your work just also makes me think largely about how to recover the political actions of of children and to show the vibrancy and the life um, that they live. And as you show in, in this book, um, how they lived in, in such short times. Um, and so we talked about politics just then, but let's talk about a little about class because your book, you had mentioned it before at the, I think almost in the preface of your answer for the previous question. So let's zero in a little more on, on the class analysis here. So really what role does class play just generally in your work and also just how does class work within the children's lives and also opportunities as well, right? Because you have someone like James McCune Smith, who grows up as a child, obviously in New York, but then his class, you know, when you can go to Glasgow or I think it's Glasgow or Edinburgh, which one, one of those Scotland, you know, Scottish universities, if you, right now, if you can go, that's damn near a class. So much less, you know, the, the antebellum era. So can you talk a bit more about how class, uh, works uh, with just generally within the frame of Black childhood in your amazing book. Yeah, so it's important to talk about for this what was going on in the world around them and how this mm-hmm. changes over the span of the book. So I just talked a bit about how they're kind of shaping the world, but it's also important to recognize that there are a few different phases of how um, Black children's political activism occurs and that Um, class develops differently in these phases. So the first phase would be the kind of gradual emancipation moment in the early part of the 19th century. And um, that this is a period of immense change and flux and migration and volatility, especially for economic volatility for newly freed African-Americans. And then the next part of the book is this more established period in the 1830s and 1840s of increasing Black activism and Black autonomous abolitionism and a kind of break away from earlier reform. And in this this moment, we have a movement towards autonomous schools and also a backlash to some of the earlier abolitionist and anti-slavery efforts and schooling. And then um, in the period leading up to the Civil War immediately, there's this other wave of uncertainty. And what I find fascinating for, for the book is this new wave of fugitivity of children who are coming into these spaces who are fugitive slaves um, and also the kind of uncertainty in the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and um, potential vulnerability for Black children. So their politics kind of shift in each of these moments, but the earlier period is marked more by um, white intervention and children trying to perform childhood in those ways that I mentioned um, a bit earlier. 
But when we get to the more autonomous Black activist moment, that's certainly where class distinctions play out much more visibly for Black children. Um, This impacts their access, as I mentioned, to some of these abolitionist um, societies and um, schools and groups. There's a kind of um, potential class distinction there, especially for schools, which, as I kind of gestured to earlier, in order to even attend school, you have to have a certain kind of economic stability where you don't depend on um, your children, where adults don't depend on their own children's labor or depend on their children kind of being out of the house and cared for and therefore providing another level of not cared for, but out of the house and indentured and therefore providing another level of economic stability. Um, So there's a class distinction there as well. Um, And we certainly know from adults, like you mentioned, who become prominent abolitionists who reflect back on their childhoods that their proximity to abolitionist activism and abolitionist movements propels their, their activism And also that some of the prominent Black activists that we consider, as you mentioned, to have a kind of proximity to elite status or um, a different racial or, sorry, a different class, um, a different class identification than other folks, that many of them were also indentured and apprenticed as children. So some of the most prominent, like Frances Harper, who was indentured as a child, or Mariah Stewart, Thomas Paul, um, Harriet Jacobs' daughter, so many of the folks that we even kind of assign a certain class status went through these common experiences. So in some ways, Black childhood as a category of analysis um, complicates the way that we think about these class distinctions for many of these groups because they were very vulnerable to some of these shared experiences. Um, A couple other shared experiences that they're vulnerable to are kidnapping, For example, Sojourner Truth's son, who is sold south um, as part of a kind of kidnapping um, experience, which can certainly happen in the wake, especially in the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Um, Racial violence, as I mentioned, um, the way that Black children are targeted, regardless of their sort of economic status um, during moments of white racial uprisings um, that, yeah, that kind of transcend class. And even statuses of being orphaned um, in some ways transcend class. I have examples of children who are sort of wrongly identified as being orphans. Either they could not find their parents or one parent died and then they're considered orphans or um, they're 
left at the orphanage, maybe their parents or their mothers were boarders at the orphanage and then left and then try to come back and get guardianship back. And sometimes they cannot. Um, so the kind of orphaning mo movement and moment um, also could transcend economic status. So in all of those ways, I think that childhood, again, as a status of dependency, especially, um, really can change the way that we think about the protections of um, economic background and elite status um, for many African-Americans in this tenuous space of the antebellum North. And so as we move to the final set of questions here, um, I want to return to Black studies for a second, right? Because uh, it's really where we began our conversation here. And it'll be our last, uh, you know, specific to more of the book before we pivot to, you know, the, the, the final round here. So what does a Black Studies approach to this? Because I know that you had said before that you have a child-centered approach, right? But you have multiple approaches in your tool belt here, right? So so let's pivot in, 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 your, in your belt here towards the, the Black Studies, you know, space. And then the Black Studies um, a tool. So can you talk a bit about how a Black Studies uh, analysis has or uh, impacted you know, right, how you write about Black child or uh, Black children, um, especially because, right, if you're just writing it as a historian, right, of, of African-American history, that's one thing, right? But as I've definitely learned from uh, for folks like Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly and others who say, you know, Black Studies, you know, BA, PhD, you know, the whole thing, right? So, so, I, so, I'm, so I'm coming with, with her and others in mind here. So as someone who graduated from this particular amazing Du Bois department, speak a bit towards or and or about rather um, about how the Black Studies approach helps you to deepen your analysis about Black childhood and Black children and, and all the amazingness that you do in this incredible, incredible book, please. Yes. So Black Studies gave me the framework and the permission to look at or attempt to locate Black children creatively in the archive, drawing on interdisciplinary sources, looking at toys, looking at literature, looking at traditional um, institutional records, and also imagining the world of Black children. And especially for imagining that world, I drew specifically on combined categories of analysis, intersectionality, and Black feminist theory and Black women historians. I approach um, my research methodology through a kind of um, combination of, I would say, of Black studies and of Black feminist theory by uh, looking at Entesaki Shange, really centering Entesaki Shange in how mm -hmm. I approach the archive. So I want to say this quote in its entirety, which is from Four Colored Girls. Entesaki Shange says, being alive, being a woman, and being colored is a metaphysical dilemma I haven't conquered yet. And that is my 
central way of thinking and imagining the world of Black children in the archive, that this is a metaphysical dilemma of contradictions and paradoxes that really propel how I locate them in the archive, specifically how children do not occupy one discrete space in our lives. And we can see this, right? Especially, again, those of us who have children in the pandemic, they're everywhere. They do not, <laughs> they do not adhere to boundaries. They are not right. just in their room. They're not just in the playroom. They are not just in age-specific spaces. They are everywhere. They permeate all aspects of life. Um, and in the 19th century, it was the same. But at the same time, we have these presumed boundaries and and spaces that say they do not exist and they are not supposed to be here. So for this reason, I conceptualized the archive and childhood in the 19th century as a kind of metaphysical space and thought about the ways that Black children enter and leave this space and challenge its very existence. And another way that I describe this is how they're playing with the archive itself, how they're making themselves visible and making themselves invisible in political ways. So as I mentioned earlier, Rachel, who's on the cover of my book, who was not anywhere clearly identified as where she should be. She's not in a record of a Black school. She's not in a record of a Black family. She's in a record of a white Quaker family, of a set of drawings made by one child. And she's not doing what we think she should be doing. She's playing. She's caught in this moment of play with two children that she was indentured to. And she is playing, but she's working at the same time. So even that kind of distinction doesn't quite land. She, that kind of boundary is, is altered th through this moment that's captured of Rachel um, playing blind man's bluff. And so in all of these things, Black Studies helped me think about and read carefully archival record to locate Black children who are extremely marginalized um, because they're children and because they're Black, and also help me read critically the archive, especially like Marissa Fuentes and Sadia Hartman, um, not to assume that these representations of Black children are what happened, are not or to read critically the, the kind of racial archive and the colonial archive, um, and also read critically the adult curated and created archive. Um, and then mm -hmm. finally, another way that mm -hmm. I got at this kind of movement and space and metaphysics 
was through cultural geography, specifically the work of Lakeisha Simmons in Crescent City Girls. Ooh, another person with a prominent blurb that I will read at the very end of your statement, but I'll let you finish. Absolutely. Lakeisha Simmons, shout out. And other folks um, I know are doing cultural geography to get at reconstructing the worlds of um, of Black folk and of Black women and children. I know Vanessa Holden's new book does this as well. So, you know, cultural mm-hmm. geography for me was was essential and this kind of conceptualization of metaphysics that comes from Black women and Entisaki Shange. Outstanding and like, oh my gosh, so, so, so much. I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to folks listening to the interview and then, you know, seeing all the shout outs that you got to put in there too. Like this is a running like book acknowledgements and, and, and all the good things. And so uh, just to make sure I deliver here, I got the book handy. So uh, uh, Dr. Lakeisha Michelle Simmons at uh, the University of Michigan prominently has on, you know, a blurb in the book, one of uh, one of three, of course. So the second blurb is a remarkable book that speaks to some of the most enduring questions in African-American history and wait for it, politics. By placing black children and mothers at the center of her work, Webster unearths histories that too often have remained invisible. Come on, come on with it. Okay, Dr. Webster is nobody to be trifled with, y'all. Come on now, let let it be known. Let it be known. And so, of course, of course, you know, um, I'm actually going to start. You're actually helping me to kind of think about, like, the new things I want to add to the podcast and, you know, adding, like, these to the uh to to the introduction uh of the podcast which i usually record after the actual interview is over oh just letting you know that on air okay here we go um and so um because you know it's it's always great because you know this is a labor of love uh, but it is a labor and so it is good to be able to um have the people whose work mentorship um and, and just lives right the living examples and the examples that you get to you know, talk with all the time um, for them to write such prominent and important blurbs for your book, which will stand the test of time, right? Um, which which is great. And so, um, so as we move to and pivot towards our final set of questions here, I'm I'm very interested to know, um, as a historian of Black childhood, as a historian of so much of what is right with the world in terms of, of children and black children, especially. Um, can you talk about what do you enjoy the most about being a scholar of black children, and black child? What, what do you, what do you enjoy the most about that? Especially like you said, with, with, with black children yourself, like what does this mm-hmm. all mean to you? Yeah, so I love to see the way that the field is developing. It is taking off. I'm so excited to see the future of Black childhood and Black girlhood studies. So I feel like we got the foundation from Wilma King. It took a minute, but now it is really, it's thriving. And we have have so many folks who... We've already named, but we're just going to name a few more. We've please got do, please do. Put them on Nazara the record. Put them on the Wright. record. We have to name Nazara Wright, who really like got us going with 19th century Black girlhood. 
and Arya Halliday. We even have Dorothy Roberts' new work on mm-hmm. the welfare, child welfare movement. We have new edited collections coming out in Global Black Girlhood, which I may be contributing to, edited by Corinne uh-huh. Field and Lakeisha Simmons. So, yes, this is a moment. It is a moment and it's going to sustain, right? This is this is not just going to be a moment. We have entire um, fields developing within Black childhood studies, which is fabulous. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, being, being really clued into and able to speak to this contemporary moment um, is really an honor and a privilege. Um, and especially to be able to observe Black children and try as an adult to construct the world of black children historically um, is such a priv- such a privilege as I'm a mother inspired by my own children every day. Um, and as I said, to just affirm black childhood, black boy joy, black girl magic, and the preciousness and creativity of black children, especially in this moment where we have to affirm that black lives matter and that black children matter in the face of vehement anti-black racism and white supremacy. I just think that that is such an important thing to name in this moment right now. Amen. And, and uh, we, you definitely put it on wax. And so certainly glad once this interview drops, uh, probably during uh, uh, the, the week of uh, Thanksgiving next week, um, that we can definitely get this out to the people because as they're eating their their turkey and what and their stuffing and and candy yams and greens whatever you eating you know they can also uh, they can also consume this interview too so uh, you know food for the soul there you go um, and so I know that um, you are a new uh, a new Canadian. Um, as well. Uh, so I think this is going to speak to the heart of the matter for, for your recent move. And so uh, th- those who listen at New Books and African American Studies know uh, the question that's coming. So returning to writing for a moment before we close up shop, as folks know, I love asking my favorite historians or writers, you one of them, of course, um, about their own writing space and, and their workspace. So since I know that you just moved to a new academic institution in a whole another country. Like I said, I think this question is quite appropriate. Um, So if you had all the money in the world, money in a thang, right? Money in a thang. What do you need in your, in in this money in a thang, writing, reading, and thinking space? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? And also you talked about music before during your 30 minute sessions. What's playing in the background? Give us a little mm. little preview here. This is actually so easy for me because I had this. I had this space Good. for a period of time. And it is attainable, especially for you, because the space for me was the train ride from Massachusetts mm. to Philly. I was the most productive I have ever been on that train going through the beautiful landscapes, especially in the fall right now, especially in the fall Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, on the train mm -hmm. 
from Massachusetts Western Mass down to Philly doing my dissertation fellowship at the Library Company of Philadelphia. So to paint the the visual picture, the mobility, the scenery, the quiet hum of the train. I'm not sure if the smell of the train is something <laughs> we, we need to probably reproduce. don't want to replicate that one. <laughs> we don't need to reproduce that, but the la- the landscape. So if I were to make my own train, it would be just me on the quiet car looking out the window with access to Wi-Fi, very, Gotta very have consistent that. Wi-Fi. Um, mm-hmm. I'm probably listening to, I listen to a lot of um, Solange when I'm doing my writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the only other thing that I would add to this train experience would probably be some access to my writing community. Either they're there with me on the train or they are easily accessed my writing community um, that I've already named my my sister scholar Crystal Doncor, but also my friends Janie and Hope who send me funny memes and get me going through the day. Amen to them. <laughs> Thank God for them. Yeah, and that this this train space to me is a kind of um, to get it back to beyond the boundaries, a kind of way of challenging physical boundaries moving through space a kind of freedom making and um yeah a space of of safety but also movement and travel and community i just love the train i'm all about riding on the train and and i love it because like literally my favorite like in terms of like working um I I've, I listen to all the varieties of Gary Clark Jr.'s when my train pulls in, right? And it's in a and it's funny if you actually go to the original music video, Lakeith Stanfield is actually in it. Like that was just wild. Like it was just random of all people. Like I think it was in the early two thousands or whatever. But I was like, I was looking on YouTube. I was like, hold on, is that really Lakeith Stanfield? And I looked real quick. It's like, yeah, that's him. And so, and and it's and it's interesting because when I think about like when I know I'm like getting ready to work and I'm in like my bag there, when my train pulls in, he has a particular uh, um, live version from Glastonbury, I think 2015 or 2016. It's like, like Buku views, like millions of views on, on YouTube. And it makes me think more about what you're saying is like, I need to be ready. So when my train pulls in, I can get up and leave. Right. So to me, it's almost like, uh, uh, I guess a metaphor of like me, needing to be where I need to be, which requires doing the work. In this case, for you on the train, but for me being on the train to be able to get to the destination, and that's to complete this dissertation and have my mental health intact while doing it, which, you know, we are all, you you, you literally described how that can literally be like a, like a hard thing to do, but it is possible. Um, so thank you for including that because like that, that just did a lot for me. Um, and so in our last question here, before we head out, Dr. Webster, uh, because obviously we we're just talking about music. So this is a, a great, um, a great way to transition. If you could curate a beyond the boundaries of childhood playlist, what five to eight songs would go in said playlist? Mm. Yeah. So I mentioned that I'm a violinist. So I have a very eclectic <laughs> t- 
taste in music. I'm going to be honest, I grew up listening to a lot of musicals and a lot of movie soundtracks. So okay, that's okay. what's going to make its way. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Playlist. Yeah. So themes of black childhood, I've got to throw in the soundtrack to Wrinkle in Time, which to me is one of the most underrated representations of black girl magic. It's gorgeous. I love it. I especially love the theme of tessering, creating, and traveling to new worlds and universes, boundary breaking. So we're going to throw in Chloe and Hallie, who are on that. And the song is Warrior. And also from the album, Sade's new song, Flower of the Universe, which is beautiful. Mm. I think also really embodies black childhood and adolescence and then going through the movie soundtracks we're going to add an interstellar which is a fabulous movie soundtrack especially for writing um very similar themes it's pretty much wrinkle in time with only adults it's the same plot. <laughs> let's be honest it's the same right thing. right <laughs> but the the main theme especially which is called stay is a very good solid instrumental piece from a violin perspective no it's just good in in general um and then i'm gonna add finally i have to do it i have to do a couple songs from hamilton because hamilton (laughs) i have to give it to lin-manuel miranda is a good a good reason why my dissertation got finished is probably it's up there with with dr dunbar and with dr sinha is (laughs) (laughs) why are you putting it on wax you letting them know you let them know they're gonna find out Writing the dissertation, especially to um, the song Nonstop, which you know is mm-hmm. why Why do you write like you're running out of time? Because some of us, you know, we were running out of time. We, we got to get it done. And mm-hmm. also history has its eyes on you. Beautiful, beautiful song and really inspiring for those of us who are writing history about people who we need to give more recognition to, like black children. Amen. And, uh, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. The mixtape, the Hamilton mixtape, um, you know, Black Thought. We are, we are in Philadelphia, you know, Common in Chicago um, and, and others. And so, Dr. Webster, it is an, it's, it's just been an amazing opportunity. We, you know, we've interacted buku times right across social media, like we said. So the, the for this to be the first time that we are uh, virtually face to face, I'm so happy to spend this time with you and like just 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 talk about your work and and not even just the work but just so much other awesomeness about you and you know I'm definitely looking forward to our next time on the podcast y'all and and for those who know who don't know I don't know how you could have gotten almost 2 hours into the interview and not know the book but for those people in the back who might not know we've had the amazing opportunity to to discuss this amazing path-breaking book, Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, African-American Children in the Antebellum North, with its author, none other than Dr. Crystal Webster, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of British Columbia. Look, y'all, she 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 cleaned up in the world. She left the U.S. and now she's in Canada with the family, teaching the teaching the kids, teaching teaching the the young folk. 
and, and, and the, the, the older folk too. And so Dr. Webster, it has been a pleasure and an honor to chop it up about your work, Dr. Dunbar, Dr. Simmons, Dr. Nunley, Dr. Uh, Holden, the whole, you know, Dr. Sinha, funny thing. In 2017, when you graduated, you're just talking about, um, you're just talking about the slaves cause. That is also when I first read the slaves cause too, in a comparative slavery seminar at Simmons University in Boston when I was getting my master's. So was, that was spring 2017. Shout out to Dr. Jessica Parr. Um, at Simmons University now, whose class I took that in. And so it's just so interesting looking at kind of like the connections and, and everything. And so thank you so much for your time. And y'all, if you enjoyed this interview, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please let us know how we're doing. Because if we ain't doing good, how are we going to know unless y'all tell us? So please put that in the reviews and let us know how we're doing. And uh, y'all, I'm your host. New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil. Until next time, y'all. Over and out. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.